Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. My guests are Katie Borum Chatou and Lauren Feldman. They are the co-authors of A Comedian and an Activist Walk Into a Bar, The Serious Role of Comedy and Justice. Welcome. Thanks. When we think of movements for social justice, we think of really serious inequalities and um, polarization that we are seeing in in the entire world these days, systemic oppression, um, climate change, corporatization, the rise of fascism. How can comedy help us to create effective social change movements? When we think about efforts for social justice, we are inherently talking about struggles that are difficult and complex, and they're often very complicated, policy-related issues. And so, you know, when we think about the range of emotions or genres or forms of communication that we need to marshal to get people to pay attention and further to get people to engage and to think about these issues, you know, uh, feelings like rage and anger um, and outrage can only go so far. And what we've seen is that you know, many movements for justice, big and small, racial justice, climate change, as you mentioned, we are finding and wrote about in the book about how much these groups are finding that they really need hope and optimism and a new way to bring audiences in to contemplate these issues. I mean, I would just add, you know, thinking about the nature of our media environment and how cluttered of an information environment that is one of the the chief advantages of, of comedy is really breaking through that cl- clutter and grabbing hold of people's attention if we want them to care about these issues they need to attend to them in the first place and, and comedy is a way in, in in that regard as well what advantage does comedy have in terms of making us pay attention to things that we need to pay attention to we know from decades of research that people pay way more attention to comedic or humorous messages than they do serious messages, right? They're fun, they're entertaining, and people like to be entertained. Um, And so because of that, they can grab a hold of our attention in ways that, you know, a serious public service announcement, for example, wouldn't. Um, And also when we are, you know, barraged with all of this negative news, you know, day after day, moment after moment, finding a sort of hopeful and more optimistic way in um, can be really advantageous. Mm-hmm. And we're talking particularly about issues like climate change that can be, you know, so overwhelming and, and, and so daunting. Yeah. And just to add to exactly what Lauren said, just to share one of the stories that we write about in the book, we wrote about this really inspiring young activist named Amanda Wen. So Amanda Wynn created a sexual assault advocacy organization called RISE, and she created it because of her own experience as a sexual assault survivor. And she um, basically identified a kind of loophole in the criminal justice system and federal legislation about access to sexual assault um, medical evidence, to one's own medical evidence to pursue the cases. And so, you know, she's doing this really hard, sad traumatic, complicated work engaging with policymakers and trying to find some kind of a policy path forward. And you would think that maybe the last thing she would turn to is comedy, but there's a lot of comedy and absurdity and outrage in poking fun at the 
the absurdity of a criminal justice system that isn't working quite right in this particular area. And so she worked with the powerhouse group Funny or Die, and they created a couple of short-form comedy pieces that really helped, to your point and to Lauren's point, it really helped to unlock the attention of policymakers and others who then found a vehicle with which to engage. And when we interviewed her about why she chose comedy and why that was meaningful, it goes back to the first part of your question, Suzanne, which is there's so many issues and um, competing for our attention that include public engagement issues, activism issues. And she said, um, paraphrasing here, but it's in our book, she said, you know, I really believe that we're going to fatigue out of caring about these issues if we don't occasionally use comedy and find a different way in. And so, you know, that attention that Lauren speaks about is really important here. It's not that she was using comedy to make fun of these issues. She was using them to unlock this kind of attention and find a new way in. And spoiler alert that story led to the passage of unprecedented legislation, bipartisan legislation that was signed into law by President Obama in October of 2016, right before he left office. And so that's a very serious way in which comedy's attention-getting qualities can make uh, you know, a, a meaningful environment for public engagement on these tough issues. The kind of comedy that we're seeing and the social critique that is contained within that comedy is specific to the media age that we're living in. Would it have had the same effect had it happened 20 years ago? 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, The Daily Show hopped onto the scene. And The Daily Show, of course, as we wrote about in the book, certainly did not come out of nowhere. There were a lot of progenitor moments that led to The Daily Show being a big hit. But The Daily Show was really meaningful in many different ways for the media climate and for the ways that we think about how public engagement can happen through um, satirical news. So we're in the streaming media environment where, you know, we're only about seven years into that uh, in which Netflix is doing original programming. Now we have Amazon, uh, Hulu. uh, We have massive streaming networks that are needing more and more pieces of content, more storytellers and so there's simply more appetite for more content and looking at diverse creators more women more people of color um to really talking about issues that matter and so the genres of comedy are now quite wide-ranging so when we think about comedy that incorporates social topics and and issues that we might want to engage in we're well past the daily show being the only the the sort of star of that kind of environment now we have shows like Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. Now we have all kinds of stand-up that's really querying social justice issues. And so maybe it's not so much that the effects are different, but that the media environment is so incredibly diverse and changing in terms of the, uh, the marketplace of ideas that are kind of being allowed in. Yeah, and, and I would add to that a, a couple of things. I think, you know, with the rise of social media and YouTube in particular, um, the gatekeepers have been removed. Um, And that has allowed a lot of newer and diverse voices to enter into the comedy marketplace. And I think Katie was was hinting at this as well. Um, And so, you know, if you think of Hassan Minaj or Francesca Ramsey or Issa Rae, a lot of them, they all got their start 
um, on YouTube, where they were able to develop a, a, not only their distinctive comedic voice, but a following to show that there is an audience for this. And then they've been able to really, um, you know, blossom on in more mainstream outlets um, on Netflix, on, on MTV, on HBO and, and elsewhere. Um, and, and one other piece of this that I think is really important when we're talking about the intersection of uh, comedy and, and social change and, and movements for social change is that digital media have really become central to social movements. Um, movements are organized via digital media and movements are strengthened when people share their personal stories and experiences and, and reasons for taking action. And that makes short form comedy, like short form comedy videos, which are very easily shareable, a really critical tactic for driving it's attention. It's interesting that you mentioned that issues. the gatekeepers have been removed, and presumably that's allowing for a greater diversity of, of voices to offer their perspective and critiques. But we also have a reality that the media is driven by profit. So I'm wondering if you could speak about that and how that works in comedy. I worked in Hollywood for about a decade for Norman Lear. Um, right when the media environment was starting to change, we were all starting to experiment with um, not streaming media quite yet, but the digital environment was dawning upon us, and Hollywood was starting to look at how it was going to appeal to new audiences and all of that. So the profit motive is exactly right. We never lose track of that's how the entertainment business works. That's how the entertainment marketplace works. That is how the gatekeepers work. And, and you know, although gatekeepers have changed, we are, are definitely not saying the gatekeepers have gone away. Um, so there's just shifting a little bit. But something that's really important to recognize is that, you know, there was a, a longstanding myth in Hollywood for many, many decades that held that and not just a myth, but a structural sort of rule in Hollywood, uh, not a good one, but that in order to, you know, put something out into the entertainment marketplace that had to appeal to the widest possible audience. And what that really meant was a sort of white, heteronormative uh, male audience and everybody else would kind of follow mm -hmm. along. Well, now this has changed dramatically because the audiences are quite different. And the audiences are demanding different kinds of content. They, diverse audiences uh, should and want to see themselves represented. Young audiences are the most diverse in American history. And so all of this combines to actually create quite a ripe environment for not so much that the entertainment industry has suddenly decided to show diverse voices because they like, you know, they're, they're necessarily doing it because they believe it's the human rights reason to do it, but because they understand that that's where the audience is and they must do it. So going back to what Lauren said about Issa Rae and Hassan Minaj and um, Francesca Ramsey sort of creating themselves on YouTube, and now they're on major networks, they, by the time they were on major networks, they already had lots of followers, thousands and thousands of followers, and so they had a ready audience. So Hollywood was not so much taking a chance on them as it was understanding, oh, there is a marketplace for these voices, and we are going to program them in. And so the, the marketplace will change because of commerce reasons as much as and in parallel to the idea that audiences have changed um, so much. We are definitely not saying that the entertainment industry has become a dramatically diverse environment. It has a long, long way to go. 
but simply that Hollywood is now reckoning, really reckoning with audience demands and audience change and in an appetite where you have, you know, television pilots have gone from something like 75 pilots in a year to something like 450 across streaming networks and legacy networks alike. That's just a massive demand for content and you simply can't fill that demand with just the same old content, you know, made by the same uh, typically white male creators. That's just an industry reality, Mm -hmm. not just comedy. Yeah. Right. And it's also the case, you know, in our fragmented media environment that success is now defined not by pulling in, you know, 60 million or 20 million viewers, but an audience of maybe one to three million or or five million viewers. And so the, the media economics make it um, make the appeal to, to smaller niche audiences make sense. Do you think that having those voices and seeing the need is also affecting kind of the, the structures of more, let's see, dominant media sources? I mean, I'm just thinking of, you know, the Oscars um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the complaint that is very well founded that, you know, it's really very still very white in every way so very white we know let us tell one story um from the book that might illustrate this in a partial answer is that everyone has the legacy networks and by legacy networks we mean of course the original broadcast networks and then later the cable networks that came along in the 90s and 2000s and now we're talking about the streamers which is the latest wave in the in the entertainment industry changed. And every one of those changes from, you know, cable brought new competition to the broadcast networks, the streamers are bringing new competition to everyone. Anytime there's a competitive environment like that, the legacy networks have to really pay attention in ways that perhaps in the past, you know, when it was a three broadcast network environment, that was what you had and that's what you could program. So one of the stories that we write about in the book a little bit is um, – we tell the story about Kenya Barris, who is the showrunner and creator of the show Blackish, the hitch ABC show, which ABC, of course, is owned by Disney, massive media conglomerate. So um, this is a big hit show. It has a pretty broad audience. It's, um, you know, a, a hit show for ABC, critically acclaimed, all of those things that we know by now. And Kenya Barris was into his second season and programmed an episode about police brutality. Now, this is not the normal thing that you would see on an ABC sitcom, um, but it's a poignant episode about police brutality. He said he was very moved by what was happening in the world around him, and he wanted to make a show that was not political, but that was really addressing these issues that were kind of like conversations that was happening in his own family. Um, and so the viewers really appreciated this. We wrote about what people tweeted, and there was critical acclaim that followed. And then, you know, Kenya Barris wanted to maybe do some more episodes, not so much about police brutality, but maybe some more uncomfortable issues that centered uh, racial justice kind of issues. And uh, we don't know for sure because we are not inside the meetings with Kenya Barris and ABC, but there might have been some reluctance to that kind of programming. And so Kenya Barris now has a massive deal. Um, oh, my gosh, Lauren, you'll have to help me remember. Is, is it Amazon or is it Netflix? I think it's Netflix. Um, I think I think it's Netflix. I think yeah. it's Netflix, yeah. 
Um, and so he's going to go to Netflix and he has a massive open deal to kind of create whatever programming he wants. And so whether or not Kenya Barris, this really successful showrunner, will then go on to create additional entertainment programming that deals with social issues, we have no way of knowing. But we do know that because of that competition, he had a creative outlet to choose a streaming network and not just stay with a traditional broadcast network for that kind of programming. So that's just one story that looks at how the entertainment industry is sort of shaking up enough so that there there's real power for Kenya Barris to say, you know, I maybe want more creative freedom to incorporate some other issues into my comedy. And so maybe I'll go to a streamer where it's a pretty open environment for creative people. A lot of people talk about media effects in terms of studies about violence and whether or not media images promote or or cause violence. That's That's been a lot of the discussion. I'm wondering how you the, assess the, the impact. Well, it of may have humor. roots in looking at, you know, violence on TV and its effects is way bigger than that. And um, media effects looks at, you know, the effects of, of political media, of health related media. And so it's, it's way broader than than just violence. Um, so we in, in the book, um, we include two chapters looking at the effects of comedy um, using experimental research where we essentially randomly assign groups of people to view a, a comedic um, media treatment of, of an issue, a serious issue. So we, we use as our example climate change and then also global poverty. Um, and so people either see a comedic um, take on those issues or a more, more serious take. And so they watch one or the other. Um, and then following their exposure to those media, we measure their knowledge, their opinions, their intentions to, to take action on the issue and so forth. And, um, and what we found um, pretty consistently in both those studies and the, the poverty study looked at documentary as its medium. The climate change study looked at short form comedy of the funny or die variety. But in both studies, we, we showed um, that that comedy can, in fact, increase engagement. And, and the mechanism through which it does that is by increasing hope and optimism and other positive emotions, and then also by creating an entertaining media experience. And, and it's often believed that entertainment and, and therefore comedy distracts from serious issues. And what we, what we instead find is that the experience of being entertained and the experience of enjoying media um, can actually create a really meaningful connection with a serious issue and as a result promote opinion change or um, intentions to, to take um, action around an issue and so forth. How did you get interested in this topic? I was in graduate school back in like 2003, 2004, and that was really the, the early heyday of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Um, and at the time, there was this media narrative uh, that suggested, you know, first of all, that young people were abandoning tr traditional news um, in favor of, of comedy and entertainment, and that this was terrible for democracy. Um, and I didn't <laughs> buy either of those arguments. Um, and so um, as a graduate student who loved The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, I started exploring the ways in which um, The Daily Show actually promoted broader engagement with politics and with political media and could really provide a gateway, um, for, um, especially for younger people who may not otherwise follow politics, 
Um, and I was able to show um, through my research that um, that people who watched The Daily Show were more attentive to, to other forms of political media and, that, and thus more engaged in politics as a result. And so that was really my start. And then, um, you know, since then, I've 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 done other work on the intersection of entertainment and politics. I teach a course about it and then started collaborating with with Katie on the topic um, a few years ago. Yeah, and then I'll just add, you know, what's fun about our origin stories is that I think we were noticing the same things at the exact same time through a slightly different lens. So in 2002, well, 2001, 2002-2003-ish, the same time frame that Lauren just referenced, um, I was working in Hollywood and I was a producer and a philanthropy director for Norman Lear, who's kind of one of the real progenitors of the idea of incorporating social justice issues into entertainment. Of course, we think about All in the Family and the Jeffersons and a, a lot of other shows. And so the work I was doing with Norman at the time was about engaging young people to get engaged in um, uh, engaging people to register to vote and to vote and, you know, to be involved in that kind of way. And it's interesting that we both locate The Daily Show as a backdrop for that work, because even though Norman Lear himself is a backdrop for this work, but we were all at that time, Norman included, were finding this great surge of energy in what was happening around The Daily Show and what was happening around young people. And so we were producing comedy for social issues. We produced a massive um, voter registration campaign with Comedy Central, its first ever in 2004. We worked with a whole bunch of big comedians to, you know, get young people to register to vote. And it turns out that was actually a historic election in actually registering young people to vote. And then as my own career progressed out of that kind of a mix of research and scholarship and, and production work and always rooted in social change, I started to get a little frustrated over the following decade that the social justice groups I was working with were not really taking comedy seriously. And so I kind of started this whole path to say, you know, what is the research and the stories that we could bring together to actually inspire social justice organizations, advocacy organizations, to really work with comedy uh, in this way? And that's kind of where Lauren and I, who had been colleagues and friends already, we kind of saw our our paths kind of converged in that sort of moment, you know, a, a decade or so later. I'm interested in how people who are not professional comedians can use comedy as a means of engagement, of community building, and of working to create social change. Well, I, you know, one thing that we uh, that we write about in the book and that we think about a lot and the center that I run has now created two big models for um, bringing social justice organizations and comedians to actually really co-create and collaborate together. So uh, these ideas kind of all come together in, I guess, two ideas that might seem to be opposite. <laughs> Maybe they're not. The one is um, our our friend Kelly Leonard, who has been with Second City for about 30 years, he says, and we quote him in the book, there are a lot of people who are practicing comedy without a license, which is actually very funny. <laughs> um, and what he's saying is, you know, going to do serious professional comedy. You really do have to work with professional comedy people because comedy is 
an art form and it takes skill and even the most amazing comedians who came out of Second City like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, they really honed their craft by working at it and working at it and going back and writing with people, you know, like any of us who have any kind of professional pursuit, we really have to practice it. So on the one hand, comedy is a form of collaboration. So advocacy groups can and do collaborate with comedians. And again, we write about that in the book. And on the other hand, I guess where this would feel maybe to be a paradoxical idea is that, you know, practicing some of the ideals of comedy is useful uh, as a useful exercise for people who are not professional comedians. And when we think about the basic premise of improv, the yes and idea, that's all about adding to people's ideas and validating what they've said and then building on top of it. And that kind of improv thinking can be useful in a lot of different arenas where we're trying to solve complex problems together. I have been speaking today with Katie Boram Chatu, who is the director of the Center for Media and Social Impact and assistant professor at American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C., and Lauren Feldman, who is the associate professor in the School of Communications and Information at Rutgers University. And both of them are authors of A Comedian and an Activist Walk Into a Bar. The Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having us, Suzanne. Yes, thank you. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Yeah.